But when the goodness but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Great job, Simon. You can be seated. Thank you, Simon. You'll see him later in just a moment in our service. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to proclaim your goodness. God, it is overwhelming to consider just how great you are. Father, we do not deserve to be known by you, for us to get to know you. God, we are overwhelmed by your grace, overwhelmed by your goodness. God, may we spend just a moment... Uh, what feels far too fleeting, but we trust uh, it is the moment you've ordained. May we spend this moment with eyes fixed on you, fixed on your goodness, and celebrating you, our holy and just and wonderful and magnificent God. May the moments that we share together be profitable in our understanding of you. May they be instructive in our obedience to you. And may they most of all lead us to worship you. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I probably don't have to uh, instruct you or tell you that we live in a very morally confused age. We live in a time where the the line between good and evil uh, gets blurred by society. And so the standard for what is good is often brought into question. Today in our world, sometimes the standard for what's good is whatever I want it to be. We decide, it's subjective. We say, this is how I want something to be good, therefore it's good. As long as I'm not hurting somebody else, this can be good. That, of course, would be an ever-shifting line between good and evil, incredibly short-sighted, and really dangerous. Uh, But I think if we look, even, even our secular culture around us, acknowledges there's a difference between good and evil. Take just about any action movie ever, and it's always about good versus evil. Or go back to the Western films where the good cowboys would wear the white hats and the bad cowboys would, cheer, would wear the black hats, and everybody cheers for the good guys. You just It's just built into the story that everybody wants the good guys to win. Everybody wanted Harry Potter to defeat Lord Voldemort. Everybody watching Lord of the Rings or reading the books wants Sam and Frodo and Gandalf to overcome all the evil people and different things that they saw. Or pick any Marvel or DC superhero movie. There's a clear hero and villain and you're cheering for the hero. It's built in us to recognize there's a difference between good and evil according to some standard outside of us. There, there is a, there's a standard, there's, there's a line somewhere that the world sees. There's, there's a difference between good and evil. It's not just what you want it to be. The question is, where is that standard? 
And if we are detached from the Bible, sometimes that line gets a little fuzzy between good and evil. And I think actually as we get into the Bible, we understand a little bit why that line is fuzzy. There was a Russian philosopher who spent years in prison for, for writing a private note condemning Joseph Stalin. And he wrote this. He said, It was only when I lay there rotting on prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil does not pass through states or between classes or between political parties either, but right through every human heart, through all human hearts. The line between good and evil, he says, goes right down every human heart. That is, that we all have this desire for good and yet this propensity to evil. And sometimes that line shifts on which percentage of our heart goes one way or the other, but the line between good and evil goes right smack dab to the middle of our heart. We all cheer for what's good. We all want what's good. And yet more often than we'd like to admit, we're like some of the kids on my three and four year old soccer team and we're dribbling toward the wrong goal. We're not cheering. For, we're not, we want good to go. We want to go this way. And yet our hearts go that way. Good and evil. We know there's a difference. And yet so often we find ourselves going the wrong direction. We need a standard outside of our own hearts. We need something outside of us to distinguish good and evil. It's got to be something that's consistent, something that is complete, something that is pure and moral and right and just and unchanging 100% of the time. Praise God that He is good. Always and forever, God is good. We need a standard like that. We need a God who is good. This fall, we have been diving into different attributes or characteristics of God and who He is. And so today we come to this most fundamental and simple and yet powerful description of God. He is good. He is good. Now, I know that in our kind of everyday language, we can use good in any number of ways. Some, sometimes we use the word good as a, as a synonym for fine or okay. And we mean just above neutral, not, not, we're not doing badly today, we're good, but we're not awesome, right? We're not doing excellent. That's not how we're using the word good today. But when we describe God as good, we're not saying He's fine. We're saying He's the opposite of evil. He is just, He is pure, He is holy, He is good. That's why I'm linking these two things together. The Bible has lots of different things to say about God's holiness. That's a study in and of itself, and we'll pick up holiness a few more times Throughout, but I'm linking these together that the, the holiness of God in the sense that He is good, He is right, He is He is pure, the complete goodness, the moral perfection, the ethical holiness of God. That's what we want to meditate on today. Of all the attributes of God, this one we actually question sometimes, do we not? I, I don't know many of you in 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 in, in uh, I, I don't know many of you that have had the experience of going through a hard time. And then, and then questioning, does God have the power to influence this situation? My experience in ministry and with people like us, like you, is that in those hard times, I, I've never had somebody say, I don't know if God has the power to change this. But what creeps into our hearts in that moment isn't a doubt of His power, it's a doubt of His goodness. Is, does God really know what's best? Does God, do I, can I really trust God to be doing the best 
thing here. We, we come up with a, a, a situation, a way this should work itself out, and we say to, to do good in this situation would be for these things to happen. And then we wait and judge God to see whether or not He matches our plan for goodness. And if He doesn't match that plan, we stand in judgment over God and say, God isn't doing what's best here. That's a temptation. We, of course, never word it that way, but that's the temptation I think we face. And so today I want to lift up the goodness of God to you so that in those hard moments, whether or not it works out like you want to, you can still cling to the goodness of God. I've said before in this series, we do theology in the light so we have something to stand on in the dark. I want you to be able to cling with 100% assuredness and confidence to the goodness of God, no matter what is going on in your life. If you can cling to that, if you can cling to a good God, you can have a rock beneath your feet, no matter the situation. God is good, and I want you to taste it today. I want you to see it today, that God is good. I want you to see and savor this about God's goodness. God is the perfect standard and source of all good. God is the perfect standard and source of all good. If you can believe this about our good and holy God, then you can stand on that no matter what, that He is the perfect standard and source of all good. The standard for what is good in the world is not determined by what we think. The standard for what is good is determined by God. Jesus uh, warned that somebody look, that came to him looking for advice. He told them, no one is good except God alone. Mark 10, 18. No one is 100% always and forever good except for God. There is one unique individual, one being who is always good. And that is God. 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none Holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, no rock like our God. No consistent, no matter what, 100% good and holy except for God. Somewhere along the way, we, if, if you're going to play any kind of game or activity, a standard must be set. If every football game had a different number of yards on the field, it would be very hard to play. If every basketball game put the, the basketball hoop at a different height, it would be very confusing. And I cannot imagine trying to play baseball if everybody's stadium put the pitching mound a different distance from home plate. There's a standard set, and that's what makes it work. In the standard of our universe, God is the standard for good. When it comes to good and evil, He and He Himself is that standard. And that's, that's more foundational than us just saying something like, the Ten Commandments are the foundation of goodness. That is something God wrote and ordained, and so that is an expression of His goodness, but even more foundational is more than His laws is His very being. The laws are the expression of Himself. Herman Bovnik wrote, God is the sum total of all perfection. All virtues are present in Him in an absolute sense. His goodness is one with absolute perfection. Mark Jones says, God as unchangingly loves good and hates evil. He is the standard. God is the standard for goodness. Not only is He the standard, He's also the source. James 1, 
uh, 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. What, what good thing do you have in life? Look at all the goodness around you and the source of all those things is God himself. In fact, if you, if you pick up a Bible and start trying to just start from the beginning and describe God as you go along, it's not going to be very far along before you get to describing God as good. You can get four verses in before you hear the word good. Genesis 1-4, God saw the light, saw that the light was good. Why was the light good? Why, what determined it being good? It's because it came from God. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. God is the source of goodness. God spoke light into existence. Therefore, the light is good. Every gift, every good thing he has made is a spring, a, a fountain, an overflow of his very own goodness. And he is not just a little bit good, right? When he says not the fine, okay God. This is the very good God, the overflowing, abundantly good God. Have you, have you ever considered why did God make the world so beautiful and not just functional? Like when I, if we, whoever built this building, you know how we got lights in here? We flip a switch on, right? God could have done that with the universe. There was no way, no, no necessity for him to make it with, you know, the sun and the earth thing. We spin and all that, right? But because God did it that way and not just like a switch that comes on at, you know, 8 a.m. every day, that means daily God is painting an enormous canvas of a sunrise every day, every day. And ch it changes the time every day, a little bit, minute different, right? And it, it's, it's enormous. And no two days are exactly the same. And then at the end of the day, he does it again in reverse, painting, it, painting the enormous canvas on the other side of the sky as the sun sets. What a gracious God that that's how he turns the lights on and off every day. And he's always doing that in two places around the world at all times. What a beautiful God that he would choose to make the world like that. God didn't have to make birds, right? Like that seems like a, uh, an addition that he added to the world. I mean, I know they have functions and all that kind of thing, but you know, he could have made the world without birds. Or if he chose to make birds, he could have stopped with like red bird, blue bird, yellow bird, done, right? There are so many different species of birds. Nobody's, not exa nobody's exactly sure how many there are, but the estimate is somewhere between 9 and 11,000 different species of birds. I'd have gone red, yellow, blue and be done, right? Why would God do that? He made over 330 different types of hummingbirds alone. I had a hummingbird fly by my nose the other morning on the front porch. Those things are incredible. I had to look it up because I was you know, fascinated. Somewhere between 500, I'm sorry, between 50 and 200 flaps every second, depending on the species of hummingbird. There are six, okay, I'm giving you way more about birds than you want to know, but this is my last, last one. There are six birds for every person on planet on the planet over 50 billion birds on the planet i'd have stopped at a couple thousand three colors and be done why why would god go to such lavish extent as to create something like that apparently god is is telling you something about his overflowing nature of beauty and goodness and grace what well, why is the universe so big really we don't need it all like we can't even see it all He's telling you there's something more than just us. This is a big, beautiful, gracious, good God. And he's created this world. 
from the changing fall colors of this season to Niagara Falls, to the gracious gift of being able to nap and fall asleep, God gives good gifts to His children. And He is always, always good. It's not like sometimes God decides to do good things, bless the hummingbirds and not otherwise. He is always good, 100% forever. He is perfect. He is perfect. 1 Chronicles 16, 34, along with at least four times in the Psalms that I could find, there may be more, we read this verbatim. This is repeated at least five times I could find. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His steadfast love endures forever. It doesn't stop. That's the definition of steadfast love enduring forever. He never stops. He is always loving. He is always good. There is nothing impure or unholy about Him. 1 John 1.5, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness. Zero. None. Zilch. No darkness at all. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. God is not debating whether or not to tempt you. He's not trying to trick you. He is not evil. He is not malicious. There's nobody that He's ever forgotten about or left out. He is always good forever. A theologian, A.W. Pink, says, There is an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that, is, that nothing is wanting to it or defective in it and nothing can be added to it to make it better. He doesn't change because He's always good, always perfect. He's the chiefest of good. Is chiefest a word? Most chief? I don't know. He's that. He's good. Two places in the Bible, God gives a revelation of His throne room. Isaiah 6, Revelation chapter 4. Details are slightly different, a little bit different creatures. Isaiah 6 has these seraphim. Revelation 4 has these living creatures. But there's something in common in that moment. In both those times, we hear this. Holy, holy Holy is the Lord. In Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Host, the whole earth is full of His glory. Revelation 4, the living creature saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. No other attribute of God is lifted, listed and described with that threefold repetition. God is never described as just, just, just or loving, loving, loving. He is described at least twice as holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, there are places where a word is repeated to show emphasis or clarity, right? For example, 2 Kings 25.15, the NIV translates it as pure gold. Literally, the Hebrew says it's gold gold. So it's not just like gold, but it's, it's gold gold. You know what I mean? What that means is pure. Like there's, it's not just like some kind of gold with a little bit of dust in it or whatever. It's, it's real gold. It's pure gold. They say it twice. But God's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Complete, pure perfection. God is holy. And this is consistent. I could sit in here all day and read you the holy and good verses of the Bible. Habakkuk 1.13 You who are of purer eyes than to see evil cannot look at wrong. Wow. 
Because God is good, all of his attributes are good. And that's a good thing. If it was not, then it would be really terrifying to have a being who would wake up and decide whether he was going to be good or evil on any given day, but he also had the power to be all-knowing and all-powerful and omnipresent, present everywhere. If, if that being who knew everything, controlled everything, saw everything, was everywhere, if that being wasn't good, we would live in fear forever. But because that being is also completely 100% pure and good all the time, then all those attributes are good news to us. Jen Wilkin has spoken about since, since because God is infinite, there are things we will spend, we, we will never stop learning things about God, right? It, it, God is, that's the definition of infinite. You can't get to the end of it. You're not going to one day go, yeah, I, I got it all wrapped up. I understand God fully now. We're going to spend eternity learning more and more about how great God is. And the good news is that she, she says, there are no skeletons in his closet. <laughs> there are things that we will not know about him that are true in this life. Like we won't know everything, but they are always going to be good things because he's infinitely good. From here to the end of him, and there's no end to him, it's all good. And that's only true of God. Just consider for a moment the terrifying prospect of having everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done plastered on a big poster all the way around the room. How horrifying would that be? Because somewhere in even the best of you, there is some bad things on that poster, but not for God. Every single detail that could ever be written about everything he's ever thought or done or said was always good. Holy, holy, holy. With some other relationship that you dig into, the more you know somebody, the more you uncover both good and evil. The line between good and evil goes between every, in, down every human heart. You're going to find skeletons in everybody's closet. And you work through that, and that doesn't end the relationship, you know. But that's, that's humanity. It's not God. There are no skeletons. God is always and forever good. Even, get this, even when he doesn't feel good to you and me. There are absolutely times when we look around at our life, our situation, the news, wars, cancers, and we go, I don't understand how God is good right here. That is normal. That is human. That is biblical. Over and over again, people question and wonder, what's God doing right here? How can this good God allow things to happen like this? But rather than trying to tackle this morning the entire philosophical question of the problem of evil, it's much more important to me right now that you would see enough of the goodness of God in the Bible so that you'd be able to trust that even in your suffering, even in your hardship, God is still good. In Psalm 27, David describes some of the evils, some of the atrocities he's facing. There, there are um, evildoers who assail him. There are a armies encamped against him, and he's crying out for God's help. And near the end of the psalm, in verse 13, this is what he says. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of God. Future tense. 
which means right now I can't see it. I see enemies trying to kill me. I see people trying to destroy my life. That doesn't look good. I can't see goodness. I'm looking all around, God, I don't see goodness. But in faith, knowing the God who he worships, knowing his character, knowing what he is like, he says, I can't see it now, but I trust there will be a day. I shall see the goodness of God. And that assurance is everything to him in that moment. What does he do? What is he going to do since, he's, since he can't see it right now? Verse 14, the next verse, last verse of the psalm. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You may not be able to see it right now, but you can stand firm on the goodness of God and the assurances of His promises that He is good no matter what. As Christians, we can stand firm on promises like Romans 8.28 only because we trust that God Himself is good. Because of that, we stand on, we know that for all who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. Sometimes that good that we want and God brings about is a better job. Healing from sickness. A better parking spot, right? That's the good you want and you desire from God. And sometimes He answers it and He gives it. But other times He doesn't. Other times He doesn't give the good things you want. And it, it, the, the lack of that thing is where suffering enters. You asked for a good thing and you didn't get it. Or you weren't asking for the bad thing and you got it. That, that's missing. There's a gap there between your desires and reality. And you feel that as acute suffering. Why? Because good parking spot or bad parking spot, God is doing something more important than just answering your desires. If God was subject to and limited to just the things you wanted, you and I would we, we'd be achieving something far greater, far lesser than what He wants. What is He doing if He's not answering the desires we have? Read the next verse in that Romans 8, 28 promise. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We proclaimed this a few weeks ago. But when Christ comes back, you will be made like Him because you will see Him. God's working on that now. He is forming you. He is shaping you. He is making you more like His Son, Jesus. And sometimes that comes through hardship. I'm just thinking through some of the testimonies. You're not going to get all of them, but here... You know, ask these people. We're going to baptize a little bit. There are some common threads of people going, life was awful and God entered there, not here. Life was down and God spoke into my life. And He formed me. He saved me. He brought me out of the hardship, brought me out of the suffering. And if I had not gone through there, I would not know Him. He is conforming you to the image of His Son. He's doing something better than just letting you live to the standard of the desires you have. He's got something better for you. But oh, that's hard to trust in the moment, is it not? It is hard to see it in the moment. So in the light, trust God. Know God. Behold His glory and His goodness. So you have something to stand on in the darkness. God is good and He is the perfect standard and source of all that is good. And if we are ever in doubt of His goodness, then turn once again to the gospel. Some 2,000 years ago, some shepherds were out keeping watch over their flock by night. 
Perhaps you remember their story. An angel appeared to them, and he started with this. He said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Not bad news, but good news. What was that good news? Well, bound up in all of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the passage that Simon read for us, Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. The cross settled it once and for all. God is good. He absolutely hates evil. He absolutely hates sin. And instead of pouring out the wrath you and I deserve on us, for all who believe, He poured it out on His Son. He poured it out on His very self. God took the punishment that we deserve to take Settling it. There is no doubt, no debate. God is good because He went in our place to die for our sins. And He invites us to repent and believe. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is good. He is good. He is good. And blessing upon blessing, as if that wasn't enough, He's invited you to be a part of His goodness. His goodness, His holiness, is something He wants to give, share, d- delight in, you participating in. We've, as we've gone through the attributes of God, we say some of these things are unique to God alone. You are not all-knowing. I know that's a shocker to you and some of our teenagers and other people. You know, We are not all-knowing and not called to be. But we are called to be holy as He is holy. But if the line between good and evil goes down every single human heart, how in the world are we going to be holy? How are we going to become to imitate God's holiness? If we have any awareness of the wickedness of our own hearts and our own temptations, how prone we are to wander, how in the world are we going to be made like God? The good news of the gospel is that we do not become good by letting the, the balance of our deeds kind of teeter-totter out over time and eventually we have more good than evil. That would be an impossible thing to judge anyway, what the value of something good is and value of something bad. We would live in an uncertainty we could never resolve. We don't get pure by just beating it out of ourselves or going to live in a cave in isolation so we don't hurt anybody. None of those things work. No, the way we become good is this. By God's grace, God declares us good. That's how you become good. God says it, and He accomplishes it. Here's what I mean. Titus 3, we just started reading. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't do it. We didn't make ourselves good. It wasn't our works that made us holy, righteous, good. No, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, so we're celebrating baptism, new life has come. By the Holy Spirit coming into us. What happened? Renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we are justified. We are declared good, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did for us. The only way we will ever be good or holy is because God says so. God accomplished it, and He said it, 
and He applied it. Justifies, we are declared right with God, not by our works, but by His declaration. Not by something you do, but by what Jesus did for us. And it is applied to all who, verse 8 in Titus 3, those who have believed. You are declared righteous. You are declared good. You are declared holy because God said so. Amen and amen. We are only justified by His grace. We often use the word sanctified to refer to the way we grow in holiness over time. And that's good. That is a good and biblical use of that word. But there are other times where God uses this word a little differently. To be sanctified is to make something holy, to transform it to become more holy. And here's what Hebrews 10.10 says. And, that, and by the will, uh, that will, Jesus' will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Declared holy. And that's what we're declaring at baptism today. That God has taken these 11 people and He is not by their works, but by His work and the gift of faith that He has given them, He has declared, you are mine. You are good. You are holy. And the blessing upon blessing upon blessing is that the work He does inside of us is that He begins to transform us in our own hearts. God declares us holy, and then God makes us holy. Some people will describe it as our positional holiness and our process of holiness. So in the very same passage in Hebrews 10 that declared you are sanctified once and for all, right after that, 10:14, for by a single offering he has perfected. You've already been perfected, he says, for all time those who are being sanctified. Which is it? Is it already done or yet to be done? Yes. <laughs> he's declared you holy and he's making you holy. The only way you can come into the throne room of God is because... When God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the only way you come in. But as you come in, you recognize the spirits inside of you and the power of God is working in you to actually transform your life. You are declared holy and you are made holy. All those passages that proclaim the gospel, Titus 3, Ephesians 2, they end with something like this. Titus 3, 8, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. There it is. You were declared good and now you do good. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. We have a new position of holiness, and we have a new power of holiness. The Spirit is inside of us. And so Galatians encourages us, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then if we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are the household of faith. One of my favorite parts in all the Narnia series books that you've all read and watched the movies and shown your kids and those kind of things is when the Pevensey children finally all four get into Narnia and they start to hear rumors about this prophecy, something about four kings, four kings and queens, sons of, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve and how they'll sit on the throne and when this all happens, Aslan will finally return. And the Pevensey children are trying to wonder, what, what, is he t what is this about? Who is this Aslan? They keep hearing this name, and, and they're not sure what's going on. So they're sitting down with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in their little hut on the river. And they're asking questions, trying to understand him. And they finally realize that Aslan is not a man. He is a lion. And the children are a little taken back by that. A lion, they say, hey, what, what? I don't know about this. And so Lucy asks this great question. She says, a lion, is he safe? They want to they meet this good guy they've heard so many things about, but... 
but he's a lion. I can't encounter a lion and live. Is, is, is he safe? And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver say, oh, no, no, no. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He isn't safe. God doesn't work how you want him to. God doesn't meet our plans exactly where we want, how we want. But I tell you, he is good. And if you can trust in the goodness of God, you can rely on him through all the ups and downs, the times where you feel like he has not made me as good as I want to be. But he is still good, and he's leading you by faith. Trust in our good and holy God.